If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 10, or for those from Europe, 2 Samuel chapter 10. Uh, We continue to go verse by verse through the book of Samuel. We're following the biography of of David, who is king now. And uh, we really see uh, this is is the last chapter where things seem to be going okay with David. It is starting in chapter 11, the... uh, it starts to go downhill. He, it's, it's like watching Kentucky football this year. Am I right? Am I right, Barry? Am I right? No, no. Like, Louisville was already at the bottom of the hill, so we, we can't. So we can win when we play the Twitter I can guarantee Kentucky's going to be. Louisville will be up to the fourth quarter. So uh, I, I can already tell you what's going to happen. Don't even need to watch. Well, uh, 2 Samuel 10 is on page 281 of your pew Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, you can take that Bible home with you, or we will get you another Bible uh, to, to read God's Word. But with that said, if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's Holy Word. Now, if we get out late today, remember, it's Danny's fault. Anytime's OCC and I get to blame Danny, it's, we, we get to, okay? All right. The writer of 2 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, starting verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servant to console him concerning his father, and David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half the beard of each, and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told to David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rahab and the Syrians of Zabah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Ma'akah with 1,000 men, the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zabah and Rahab and the men of Tob and Ma'akah were by themselves in the open country." When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what, is, what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and had a Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at the head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him, and the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men and 700 chariots, 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shabak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. When all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel, became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Our Father, as always, we ask you would open our hearts that we would receive your word, our mind that we'd understand it, our eyes that we would see your glory, our ears that we would hear and heed your word, our mouth that we'd speak the truth of the gospel, and our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience to Christ. May we see your word and may we obey it. And may I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. May be seated. I think if memory serves me right, I was a sophomore when word had came to me in Spanish class that one of my teammates was nearly killed in a car accident. I called my father from the school saying that practice has been called off. We as a team are going to go up to Lexington Hospital and we're going to go visit our teammates. He's okay, uh, but he, 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 we're going to go up and visit him. Waited for dad to get home and we immediately run up to Lexington and we come to the hospital and find out what room he's in and we get on the elevator. And elevators are awkward moments in life, right? You don't want to be an elevator anymore than I want to be an elevator. And you don't want to be an elevator with the people you're in the elevator with. Let's just be honest, right? It's an awkward time. And what you hope is that any stranger that you share an elevator with, you ask that they do not make con- eye contact with you or speak to you. Isn't that sort of common courtesy? That is not the case in the McDonald family. We love to talk, and, and we love to make awkward situations even more awkward. And in this case, it was my father. It was a, a, an otherwise lovely lady sitting next to us and, and minding her own business, didn't want to be spoken to. Didn't want anyone to make eye contact with her. And then my father turned to her and said, how are you, ma'am? Let me ask, when is the glorious day? She looked at him and said, sir, I'm not pregnant. I'm just fat. By the way, those are verbatim quotes. That is, that was, I mean, I still got it. I remember where I was. I remember the joy that fell upon my soul as it was one of the greatest moments of my life. I'm about 15, 16. My brother be, you know, 19, 20 years old. And, and I, guess, I guess about 18, 19 years old. And, and we started laughing. Started just, just busting the guts, we say in, in, in the South, right? I mean, we just couldn't stop laughing in front of our father, in front of this woman, this strange woman that he just offended. And I will not apologize for it neither. It was just, just so good. And what was clear for my father, as his face got redder than, than, than well, Louisville Cardinals, right? That's why we became Cardinal fans. And, and that's the color we like. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And he got so embarrassed as we're laughing at him, pointing and laughing. Ha, Dad, ha, Dad, you made a fool of yourself. All he could say was, well, that did not go the way I had anticipated. <laughs> David enters a moment like this here. In fact, if, when you first start reading this chapter, you, you think the story is going to go one direction, ends up going the other. You think it's going to be about a funeral, ends up being about a war. So let's start here with the context. The context is very straightforward here in verses 1 and 2. And, and, and we're introduced to two new characters in the story, particularly King Hanun. Uh, king Hanun is, is the king of the Ammonites. We've met some of the Ammonites here and there. I, I don't want to trace all of that. His father, King Nahash, has just died. And King Nahash is best remembered in 1 Samuel as warring against King Saul, David's immediate predecessor. Now, the Ammonites are longtime adversaries of Israel. And you remember that Ammon is the son 
of uh, Lot, remember, through, through his daughter back, back in the book of Genesis. If you come on Wednesday nights, we spent some time on that a few weeks ago. So what the narrator's really doing in these opening verses, verses 1 and 2, is he's, he's connecting for us what happened in chapter 9, which we saw last week, and, and what is going to happen in chapter 11, which, Lord willing, we will see next time. You remember what happened in chapter 9? Uh, is is they, that David sought to show gospel kindness to someone of Saul's family. And he's presented with a man by the name of Mephibosheth, who was handicapped, who was the grandson of the former king. And so what we get in that story is a lovely story of kindness and love and reconciliation. It's a great story. I recommend it to you. A lot of good application there uh, to have. And you'll notice here, particularly in verse 2, uh, after he receives word that King Hanun has, or King Nahash has died, David said, I will deal loyally with him. That's the ESV, the, the translation I'm using. Um, the word in Hebrew is the same exact word as chapter 9. It means kindness. It's the same word. Right now, it's it's translated a little differently in my Bible, maybe yours, uh, for, for for various reasons. But it's the same exact word. So what you get in chapter nine is how David shows kindness to Saul's household, that is his domestic enemy. In chapter ten, David seeks to show kindness to the household of Nahash, that is his foreign enemy. But what you'll find in chapter eleven is the story of Uriah and Bathsheba. And we would expect David to show kindness to that household, his, his ally, his, 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 his actual uh, people. But he ends up showing animosity, reminding us, as Alistair Bay likes, likes to remind us, the best of men are men at best. Well, that's the context. Let's look quickly at, at the crisis here, verses 3 through, through 5. And we expect that the story of chapter 9 continues in chapter 10. Just as Mephibosheth was shown kindness by David, he receives it and is blessed by it. Hanun receives the kindness of David in that he sends delegation, he sends ambassadors to the king to, to comfort and to honor his deceased father. We do this today, right? If a head of state or a former head of state were to die, there's a good chance, especially if they're allies, the president, the sitting president of the United States, and maybe some of his predecessors from both parties will then travel and then go and, and honor that person. And when you honor that person, you're honoring the nation, you're honoring the administration. David doing the same thing here. So we would expect King Hanun, the new king, seeing people wanting to honor his father, he would receive that with gratitude and thanksgiving. And so we expect this story to be about a funeral. It's really about a war because what Hanun does is he, instead of receiving David's kindness, he essentially declares war. Like Rehoboam after him, this new king chooses foolish counsel. His, his counsel convince him, his advisors convince him that David has not sent ambassadors, he has sent spies. They are from the CIA and they have come, what does it say there in, in verse three? They have come to search the city, to spy out the city and to overthrow the city. Well, so what does Hanun do? He believes the false report and accusations of these advisors. And he declares war. He does it primarily in two ways. First of all, he shaves off half their beards. Now, this 
is weird to us, right? Because, uh, because we have uh, uh, bad theologians who don't have beards and good theologians who have beards. So for the next two weeks, I'll be a, a moderate theologian, okay? The beard will come back. I got rid of the mustache for those of you, my wife and daughter, who are complaining, right? So the stash is gone. It's a Halloween costume. Stash will probably come back because they really hated it. And that just tickled me. But they shave off half their beards. And for a Jewish society, are very modest. And, and their beard was, was an important sign of their masculinity, a sign of honor and strength and everything else. So uh, just put them on. We won't read through them all. You can see that the, they were told not to shave the beard. And this is shaving half the beard to make it to add insult to injury. The second thing he did was he cut their official garments. These would be garments given to them by the king that, that would symbolize that they represent David or here on behalf of David. And they are exposed. You see it all the way down to the hips. They, they are exposing their nakedness. Now, again, ancient Jews are very modest people. And this would have brought great shame and embarrassment. By the way, this act of cutting the robe is, uh, is exactly what would happen happened to uh, captives of war. It was not uncommon in the ancient Near Eastern world that if you were a, a prisoner of war, this is what would happen to, to you. And so he essentially declares war. A, a good example of this in modern film, not recommending the film at all, but, but just to give an example, in the movie 300, whenever the Persian ambassador is trying to make peace, whatever he's trying to do, you remember what uh, uh, the, the Spartan king does? He kicks him into that whale or whatever it is, and he screams, uh, 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 this is Sparta, whatever it is. By doing that, that act alone is a declaration of war. So too, by treating or mistreating David's ambassadors, he uh, is asking for David to respond, not with uh, ambassadors, but with an army. And so that crisis leads naturally to the conflict here in um, in verses, uh, verses 6 to 19. So now we, we come to war. And one of the things you'll notice here is that Hanun isn't ready for war. He's a brand new king. He's not ready for war. And, and you're reminded of Jesus in Luke 14, right? And he says the foolish king is one that goes to war without counting the cost. He knows he has an army of 50,000 and the other guy's got an army of 50 million. He thinks, ah, we'll figure it out when we get there, right? That's a foolish king. And this guy proves to be a foolish king. So, so the way this, this, this war uh, happens is pretty straightforward. I think, we can, I think we can look at it pretty quickly. He knows his army isn't big enough to go up against big bag David and his big bag general Joab. Okay? So what he's going to do is he's going to recruit. He's going to buy soldiers. And you see it there in verse 6. He's going to hire 20,000 Syrian soldiers, 1,000 soldiers from Ma'akah, and 12,000 soldiers from Tob. I don't know who these people are, and you can't pronounce their names because I made up the pronunciation. We'll move on. You see the point there, right? He's got his army. He's got these allies' armies. He is probably uh, offering some sort of financial benefit to them. And now he's got a larger army. He can take on David. So in verses 7 to 14 is the actual battle. And Joab's strategy is pretty straightforward, right? He's got, arm, he's got a military in front of him, military behind him. So what's he going to do? He's going to split his army up. He'll, he'll look to his brother and say, you go this way, I go that way. If you're in trouble, I'll come help you out. If I'm in trouble, you come help me out. And what happens in the war? Well, first, the Syrians flee. And then when the Ammonites see that the Syrians have fled, they flee. That's the end of that battle. Well, that's pretty straightforward, wasn't it? Exactly what did he have there in the text? But something changes here, right? 
You see, what, what started out as an interpersonal conflict, if you will, has now spread to, to involve other people. If only I could think of an application there. Can I think of an application where interpersonal conflict spreads beyond those two people? Man. Like, can you imagine if we ever, if that ever happened to us? <laughs> I can't either. But you see, then, that goes from interpersonal conflict between the Ammonites and the Israelites to now, in verses 15 to 19, the Syrians regroup. They want to get in on the action for, for, for themselves. And, and so, although they were initially beaten back by a Joab, they return with greater numbers in order to fight again. So they gather at a place called Halam under the uh, leadership of a general by the name of Shabach. And, um, and sure enough, the same thing happens. David joins the fight this time. He wasn't with them before. Remember that detail when we get to the story of, of, of Uriah and Bathsheba. But David, like Joab before him, defeats the Syrians. And during the battle, their general is fatally wounded. And the result of the battle is that Syria become vassals of Israel. Now, we looked at some of the, there's some debate about this. If you go back to chapter 8, you have a summary of all those battles David won and he extends the borders of Israel. It goes all the way up to the Euphrates River, and that is a strategic location because of the economic might of trade and the river, right? You've got the King's Highway going up on, on the west. You've got the Euphrates River on the east. That, that is a strategic place for economic and military influence. And so through this, David extends his borders. The Lord is with him. And, um, and maybe by the end, we, we think maybe Hanun and the Syrians will be wiser next time. By the way, you need to know this, this, this fight with the Ammonites will not conclude until the end of chapter 12. It takes three chapters to get through it. It's sort of like the, uh, 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 when Saul was trying to catch David. It just continued and continued and continued. Well, this is going to last for three chapters. What started out as an act of kindness has turned out to be a three-chapter war. So what do we do with this chapter? I, I, think, I think what happens in it is pretty straightforward. The question we have here is, what, what do we do with it? Can I offer just a few points of application? You've got them in the bulletin with you. The third one's a little different, but not, not that much different. But it's there in the bulletin with you if, if you need an outline. The first thing, let's have a word about um, godliness. One common motivation... I have seen, whether in counseling or just in pastoral ministry, for obedience and godliness and holiness is that we try to use righteousness as a means to an end. I did what you asked, preacher. She still won't talk to me. I've been praying hard, preacher, but I still live paycheck to paycheck. I stopped shouting at my spouse, and we're still not getting along. In these scenarios, we can think of a million more. Obedience is a trick to get something from God. It's like we come before the throne and say, okay, God, what is the bare minimum that I have to do to get what it is I want from you? We see that, that faithfulness and obedience is a means to an end. And that is where we confuse uh, holiness with morality or moralism, we should say. Moralism is to turn righteousness into a means and end. What can I get from God? Holiness is, is, is the end itself, that we want to be like Christ. We want him to be glorified in and through us. That's 
holiness. And our holiness is there despite the outcome, despite our circumstances, despite what we want in the end. We choose holiness even if it doesn't benefit us. Now, in, 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 in these scenarios, we, we, and when we buy into a moralism, we, we, we make this mistake. I'll be a nice person if they'll be nice to me. I'll read my Bible if God starts blessing me. I'll quit that addiction if she'll take me back. I'll go to church if things start turning around. That is not genuine repentance. That is not genuine holiness. The godly pursue holiness regardless of the benefits. Good works is not a secret sauce. And chances are, because we're inundated with this lie in American evangelicalism, turn on your, your TV, you'll get plenty of it, or your radio, we, we wonder and we begin to fracture whenever we think we're doing everything the right way and the, way, the, the outcome isn't what, what, what it is that, that, that we want. And so we, we begin to doubt the goodness of God. And so the connection, again, between chapters 9 and 10 is very easy to see, right? We have a chapter, again, in chapter 9 about gospel kindness. Remember, gospel kindness is rooted in the cross. It is, it is to, to give without demanding anything in return. Mephibosheth has nothing to give to David. David can only show kindness without demanding Mephibosheth give him any, any, anything in return, right? It is generous as grace is generous for us. As God in Christ has shown us kindness, so we show kindness to others because we will never outshow the kindness to others that God has shown to us in Christ, right? That's chapter 9. And so when we open up the chapter and say, oh, uh, David gets the memo, I'm sure in the form of a text message, that King Nahash has died. Oh, let me show the same sort of kindness, not just to my domestic enemy, let me show kindness to my foreign enemy. He seeks peace. He seeks relations. What he got was war. But David did nothing wrong. He did the right thing regardless of the outcome. Think about it. If you're David, you think, if you think in terms of politics, you think in terms of outcome. His choice is if I show kindness, there will be war. If I don't show kindness, I don't know what will happen. The option we should always choose is the gospel is holiness. He did the right thing regardless of the outcome. Hanun's rejection does not make David the fool. It makes Hanun the fool of the story. He was offered peace. He chose war. Brothers and sisters, let us choose holiness. Holiness. We may lose every battle. Things may not go our way and everything may fall apart, but choose holiness. You know, one of the things that turned pagan Rome into a Christian Rome, it was at that point right there. What motivated the, the church of God to choose holiness over convenience was the gospel. And they understood that if I am faithful to Christ, I could be executed by the state's. That's not a good end to that means. But see, they didn't choose holiness for the end or for the means. They chose it as the end, to be like Jesus. Secondly, what we need to see here is a quick word about courage. 
One of the things scholars like to point out when when reading this chapter, God ain't mentioned a whole lot in this chapter. You notice that? Go back over, particularly since David's been king. uh, The Lord is mentioned all the time. He shows up one time in this chapter, and and it's Joab who speaks of him. It's in verse 12. Let's look at it again. We just passed by it earlier. Be of good courage, he says, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. There's Elohim, the, the, the general name for God, and make Yahweh, the, 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 the divine name of God, do what seems good to him. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe I'm reading into this. You, you can correct me later. Some of you will anyways. And, and is, is when I'm reading Joab here, I'm hearing Joshua. Remember, Joshua is, is frequently talking about strength and, and courage, where he says, Be strong and courageous, for you, shall cause, uh, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to your fathers to give them. Be strong and be very courageous. Oh, but in case you missed it the first time, right? It's, 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 it's like a parent talking to a teenager, right? <laughs> clean your room. Oh, in case you didn't hear me uh, three seconds ago, go clean your room. Oh, and I'm going to get your father in here. He's going to tell you to clean your room. Hey, honey, come tell him to clean your room. In case he didn't hear me say it the three times, go clean your room. Did you hear that? He said clean your room. That's what Joshua's doing here. Be strong and courageous. Be very strong. Be very courageous. In chapter 10, the same thing. He said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. Just two examples we could give from the book of Joshua. We could look at a few others. Chapter 1 is littered with the exhortation to be strong and courageous. One of the common errors I find in ministry is our assumption that our preferences and hopes equal God's ultimate good. We, we make this mistake all the time. We, we think, well, what I desire is a good thing. What I desire might be an honorable thing. What I desire might be a convenient thing. Therefore, God must agree with me. And then when things don't go our way, when things seem to fall apart, what do we do? We start to question God's goodness. See, it's hard to listen to God when you're the one telling him what to say. And we do that all the time, all the time. We need a theology that affirms the unshakable goodness of God regardless of the outcomes. God is still good if you don't get that job. God is still good if, the ch- if churches close. God is still good if you're still single. God is still good if your guy loses the election. God is still good if revival never arrives. God is still good if your prayers aren't answered the way you want them to be answered. After all, notice the text again during verse 12. You can see it for yourself. What does Joab tell, tell his men? Be of good courage and let our courage be shown for for the men as we go to war, that they may be courageous. That is not where the verse ends. Is it? Is he saying, be courageous and we're going to win? Be courageous, don't worry. We we, we sacrifice enough sheep that God is obligated to do what it is that we ask him to do. Read the verse again. We are courageous and our people courageous. May the Lord do what seems good to him. That could mean Joab dies in battle. That could mean that Israel loses to the Ammonites and the Syrians. That could mean that, that David's military is, 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 is having to shrink back, having to flee. He loses ground and they have to regroup. That could mean a number of things because that's what it meant for Saul at the end. That's what it meant for Jonathan in the end. Was God somehow not good? We need a theology that affirms the unshakable goodness of God regardless of the outcome. And that requires 
courage. A courage to say, you know, I don't understand everything. I don't understand how it all works. I don't. One thing I do know, God is good. And He is good all the time. So Joab has confidence in the Lord's goodness and uncertainty in the outcome of the battle he is about to fight. Look, look. God's goodness may be shown in your situation long after you're gone. We've been going through the story of Abraham in Genesis, really the whole book of Genesis. We're in the story of Abraham now. Isaac was finally born. One of the things about about the story of Abraham is half the promises God gave him, Abraham and his immediate descendants never saw fulfilled. He had the line in Isaac. He didn't have the land. In fact, it isn't until the days of Joshua that that promise is fulfilled hundreds of years later. Was God still good in the days of Abraham when he was a sojourner? Yes. Was he still good in the days of Isaac when, when he was wandering around looking for a wife? Yes. Was he good in the days of Jacob when he mourned the, what he thought was a loss of a son who had to go to Egypt and everyone had to go to Egypt years later? Was God still good and they're no longer in the promised land? Yes. Was God still good and his people are slaves? Yes. Is God still good when, when Moses has to flee for 40 years and have to wait 40 more? Yes. Is God still good when, when Pharaoh makes it harder on them? Yes. Is God still good for for Four decades in the wilderness of a lot of suffering and fears and doubts and hardship and war. Is God still good? Yes. God is good regardless. But it takes a courageous faith to live out that faith. Can I give you just one last thing and then we're done? We're wanting to take Paul out for, for lunch and we're trying to beat the Methodists. So, so we got to go. If you're a Methodist here, that's a joke. We're trying to beat the Presbyterians, okay? <laughs> I'm not worried about the Episcopalians or the Catholics. They'll go a lot longer than us, okay? Let's have a word about the gospel. Every time we open God's word, we dare not close it until we see Christ and Him crucified, right? We've been here, we've been here over six years. Surely by now you're, you're getting this. Do you see Christ here? Can I throw up five words on the screen and you tell me what story I'm describing, okay? You tell me what story it is I'm describing. Here they are. And for those who went to public school uh, in a roof for Kentucky, let me read them for you, okay? I went to public school. It's, 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 it's a joke. Kindness, serpents, shame, exposure, clothes. What story comes to mind? I'm willing to bet it's Adam and Eve, isn't it? God's kindness and giving them marriage and unity, a beautiful garden, a place to work without a boss. Uh, it just, just no taxes. We could add that. I mean, what great kindness to the Lord that, that, that he would offer to, to, to man and woman to be vice regents over his creation. I mean, that's, that's kindness. And what do they do? A serpent sneaks in and brings about shame. Shame seen in the exposure of their nakedness. That, that, that they were naked and not ashamed in chapter 2, but now they see that they are naked. And they run off to hide their nakedness with fig leaves, mere fig leaves. But it is the Lord who comes, offers a sacrifice to cover their shame. That's, that's a good story, Adam and Eve. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Your Sunday school teacher's done a good job. But maybe I'm describing this story in 2 Samuel 10. 
After all, it starts with gospel godly kindness from a king. And yet, what the response to such kindness is shame and exposure, isn't it? Literally, it's the shame of the beer and the exposure of, of the garment right there in the text. You say, well, uh, well, where's the snake? I'll tell you where the snake is. If, if you come on Sunday nights, you probably know exactly where the snake is. King Hanun, you remember who his father was? Verses 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2. His name is Nahash. You want to know what the Hebrew word Nahash means? Transliteration in, into English. His name is King Nahash. You want to know what Nahash means in Hebrew? Snake. You see, in in the arc of Scripture, the promise is that one will come to crush the head of the serpent. And so when Saul becomes king, he goes to war against King Nahash. And what does he do? He crushes the serpents. Now David is king. He must war against the offspring, the seed of the serpents. But what does David do before he goes to crush the serpent seed? He looks at his ambassadors and says, stay in Jericho until you are covered, until you are clothed. It's the same story, isn't it? But maybe we're not talking about either one of those. Maybe, just maybe, what we're talking about is Christ. Who Christ who stoops down to us. The arms that that create the universe, the cosmos, in birth are not long enough to hold his own mother. He stoops down in in godly kindness and and he he heals the sick and opens the eyes of the blind and and frees the demonized and heals and raises the dead. He does all of this kindness, yet, yet he is rejected. Yet there is no one there to comfort him. Upon a cross he is exposed. Shame and ridiculed laid upon him, and there is no one there to, ridicule, to, to comfort him. And the reason is quite simple. Christ takes upon himself my shame, my guilt, my sorrow, my brokenness, my sin, my past, my evil, my wickedness. He takes it all upon himself. And he is thus clothed in my shame so that in Christ I might be clothed in his righteousness. It's really a story about Jesus who comes and he sees us there on the side of the road covered in our own shame. He says, don't worry about it. In fact, one of my favorite passages in all the Bibles in Zechariah 3, I don't have time to look at it, Just in reference, there the high priest comes before God and he is covered in excrement. And you remember, there is Satan saying, see, this is your people, how filthy they are, how ugly they are, how how, how nasty they are, how dirty they are. You remember what Jesus says there in that scene? Remove Remove the filth. Remove it all and give him a pure white robe. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus goes to war to crush the head of the serpent so that we might be free, so that we might be righteous. And we choose righteousness, having been clothed in righteousness, without any concern with the outcome. It's about Christ, the one who slays the dragon. 
and clothes us in his righteousness. So I don't know what your story is. I don't know what your needs are this morning. I don't know what brings you here this morning. But I beg of you, whatever shame and guilt and burdens you carry, will you lay them at the cross? Will you find freedom in Jesus? Will you give it over to him and be free from it all? Your past, your present, your fears, your doubt, your sins, your sorrows, lay it before him and let him cover you in righteousness. You'll never walk in shame or sin again. Let's go, Lord, and pray.